This is the Culture Change Paradoxes webinar series from One Fish, Two Fish, and I'm Carrie Beddingfield. Culture is a complex system where many different elements interact with each other and where outcomes are not predictable. And even if it were possible to follow all the steps in the great book you've just read or the slideshare you found online, you will almost certainly not get the outcome in the big change project plan that you wrote at the start. One Fish, Two Fish has been helping organisations become faster, more agile, more high trust, more collaborative for 13 years. And what's clear in a complex system like this is that it doesn't consistently respond to modern management techniques. In this series, we will share what we've learnt about what culture does respond to. And you will hear conversations with our extended team, which will help put a language to some of the paradoxes you've probably already been experiencing and conversations that might help you plan and execute your work differently, talk to the business about it differently, and even change your view about what the goal is. The Culture Change Paradoxes webinar series is for people at mastery level. Uh, full notes will be shared with the recording afterwards, so any technical terminology, any references to people or other links and resources will be shared. And today, um, we're going to start uh, opening this season with a conversation with Richard Atherton. Hello. So Richard is currently the change agent for the BBC. He's a partner at First Human and he's part of our extended One Fish, Two Fish team. And in opening this series, he's offered to go hardcore on change. So put that in your Twitter feed on a Friday morning. Hi, Richard. Hello. So nice to be here. Tell us, Richard, first of all, so why, why is culture change so painful and what could be exciting about that? Hmm. Okay, so why is it so painful? I, th I think the first thing, the, the first challenge I'd make there is that culture change can be painful for some people some of the time. Uh, and of course, sometimes culture change can uh, be delightful for people and can be welcome and liberating and wonderful. So um, w why is it painful for some people some of the time? I think there's no single answer to that. Um, it can be a threat to identity, a threat to, to power, a threat to relationships, um, a challenge to one's values. Um, it could be triggering in some way um, to, to an individual in terms of what they've been through in their past or in their childhood. Even so, I think um, such is the complexity of, it, of individual human beings uh, that uh, a, a change in their environment can have un well, predict. I mean, this is this is what we say from the complexity perspective: is that it can have predictable and unpredictable effects. Any change can have predictable and unpredictable effects. So, tell us more about that. You mentioned you just touched on the magic word um, complexity theory. Do you want to talk us <laughs> talk us through that? Uh, talk us through complexity theory. So, I mean, it's a. What can we say about it? I suppose it's. Uh, um. I suppose there's, there's a history of of complexity thinking, which has its roots in in philosophy. Uh, certainly, as it, as it applies to human beings, it roots in philosophy and, and sociology. Um, and but there's also complexity science in terms of modelling techniques, particularly of complex adaptive systems, where we're starting to get insights um, from from those modelling. Um, environments in terms of what happens. <laughs> hello Sana. uh with, with um yeah with what effects emerge from from those mo modeling out of complex adaptive systems so those so those two insights from both of those fields combine into a a body of work if you like around complexity um and there are specific writers who have attempted to think about how that applies to organizations to leadership to change and so on and as um change agents or people who are responsible for somehow shifting a culture from one state to another in an organization what can we understand from 
complexity that helps make sense of that world? What would you draw our attention to? Um, well, first of all, to challenge the idea that we can move at, at, at something from one state to another. So um, from from a complexity perspective, we, 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 we well, at least let's take it from the perspective of, of Ralph Stacey, who's a complexity thinker, who's had a lot of influence on me. And, and he, he, he describes this notion of transformative causality. Um, and that's the idea that as individuals, we are being formed and forming our environment um, in an ongoing dynamical process. He calls it com- complex responsive processes or that, um, that, that, it, that exist um, and, and persist um, in populations of, of human beings. And so to that extent, it's, it's sort of meaningless to talk about this state and that state <laughs> because we're, we're continually forming and being formed by our, by our environments. And within that context, patterns emerge and and it's in recognizing those patterns that we 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 gain some level of predictability but equally um events occur and phenomena occur um in ways that are not that don't form patterns and that are as such not predictable so we have predictability well we have and unpredictability so that, that sounds like a message to me that the board are just not going to stomach. <laughs> so uh, sorry about this, but uh, we can no longer move from one thing to another because we're all forming and reforming and um, uh, oopsie, I'm out of a job. <laughs> so so in, in the context of an organisation which has a, rightly or wrongly, has a, a vision, a set of strategic priorities, um, uh, probably multiple work streams of change uh, programs that are going on how on earth do you kind of smash together those things how would you begin to use some of just a bit of that insight that you've shared about the unpredictability and pattern spotting to do anything real in a real organization um so well there's two things in what you said here there's uh, there's there's this this idea of, of setting goals and having visions and so on and it's not to say that those can't have an impact so it's not to say that by sharing a, an aspiration or a um, a desire to go in a particular direction, that that can't have some impact on the population of humans you share it with, right? So so it, it is so it's not like those statements are meaningless. It's simply to say that they will be taken up and interpreted by those who receive them in ways that may be predictable and unpredictable. So so it's so. But, it, but it's still it's still going to have some impact. So, so we're not saying don't have a vision, don't have aspirations, don't have goals, because they may have some impact in the environment you're working in. Um, and then the second point about what you're saying, what can we do that's, that's real? I think there is something to be said for having our feelers open and, and, and sensing for what's emerging and saying, well, there seems to be a lot of stories in this organisation that pertain to, let's say, customer experience or employee experience. There seems to be some. There, there are this. There is this theme or that theme, and articulating that back to the group may have meaning and may be real for people, and that may be useful data and information to move forward with. You know, if if we get a collection of stories which seem to centre around a particular frustration, that that is real at some level. And if we can call it, and as our job as change agents and leaders is our ability to articulate that, then then we can we can have impact in that conversation, and we can we we can allow some some new conversation to emerge. So Dave Snowden. Um... And I think he takes this from um, uh, somebody else's book, actually. But he would he would say. Um, as, as, as you as a leader as you hear negative stories arise rather than trying to refute them instead make them visible but then take small actions that make those stories more difficult to tell and he talks about story tr- triggering um and i wonder as as practical change agents if you think about your work at the bbc and so many interesting organizations what would you do with that story piece what would you what would you literally do in practice 
Um, okay, so you want to so you want to find ways to articulate those stories um, in a way that's meaningful for the for, for the population. So what, what what does that mean? So it might it might be I don't know putting a wall up and finding some way to uh, present the different stories verbatim if you can um, to provide the raw data and some way of sh- of, of showing a pattern or uh, drawing some conclusions or making some statements about what you think is, is, is emerging in the culture. So this set of stories suggests to us that this is true. <laughs> and given that this is true, we, we believe that one experiment we could make, which would allow us to have, and I think this is what David is alluding to, to have less stories like this is X. What do you think? Should we try that? Um, and so that would be that would be a way of practically dealing with um, the, the, the stories that are emerging in the environment and make them visible in some way, attempt to make sense of them and, c- and come to the conclusions and then suggest some kind of a nudge or an experiment to, to have less or more stories of that nature, depending on the yeah. nature of the stories. So it's, this is really interesting. So it sounds like if, if the premise is that um, we cannot control an organisation and shift it from one stage state to another um, and that it is constantly forming and reforming with these emergent properties. What can we do? Well, we can start to um, make some of those patterns visible to everybody and to help everybody make sense of them. So I picked up a few a few other things there, one of which is that um, uh, old, old way might be that Part of the business collects a load of stories, a load of stories, takes them away, um, makes sense of them, plays them back to the organisation or makes some decisions based on the meaning they've derived from them. New way is um, a change agent is responsible for making those stories um, available to everybody so everybody can derive meaning and learning from them and the group can learn together. So bringing the... Um, uh, processing and use of those stories right into the heart of the people who are who, who have created them and are part of them in the first place mm, yeah that's right i think that's one one particular shift yeah so the the paradigm of hoovering the bureaucracy hoovering up all of those stories into the center trying to make sense of them and then and then pushing down some initiatives mm. as part of some change plan um it, in some ways it's it, it it's a similar process but i suppose what we say is we take some of the aspects of that process, but yeah, have push it more into the people who are most likely to be able to make sense of those stories uh, and suggest nudges or probes to use the lexicon within that team or that division um, that they, that that, um, those involved think might result in there being less or more stories, but then you want to in real time monitor what now emerges. (laughs) Cause if we take the perspective of a, of a, you know, this idea of a, um, of an ongoing forming and reforming, then in the act of carrying out the experiment, some, something else is going to merge that we may be able to predict or not, or, or we may not be able to predict. Um, but the point is to be continually sensing. So it's the, so the idea of the sort of annual survey where we take the snapshot, we design our initiatives, we roll our initiatives out, and then we take another snapshot a year later doesn't really make sense. Uh, in the context of, of some of the complexity thinking. So this is interesting, and let's talk about that sensing piece. So in Frederick Leloux's book, Reinventing Organisations, which some people uh, come to one fish, two fish events, kind of clutching a copy of and waving quite high in the air. Mm. Um, he describes in some detail how, or makes a real case for why and how you would move away from a um, measuring and monitoring type of organization and a kind of achievement or oriented organization towards a sensing organization and the idea that we have we are human sensing machines uh, capable human beings being excellent at handling complexity if they're provided with the right conditions Mm. can you tell us a bit more about what that sensing organization might look like and why it matters um so, okay. So, what it looks like and why it matters. So, so, so I think I think let's start with why it matters, and then maybe what it looks like. So, so what I think why it matters is is because um, 
because if we accept the premise that we've we've got this continually changing organization um then why does it matter to sense it's it's because it allows us to make better decisions it allows us to have more impact in the world because we're we're um it's it's clearer to us what's what, what's real so it allows us to have a better grasp on reality and to the extent to which we've got a better grasp on reality that it, um, it is true that we can make um better decisions more impactful decisions so so i think that's the, that's the why of it uh, and the what of it is um so an organizational level i think there are things some things you could say at an organizational level and maybe i'll come to that but i think at an individual level it means developing one's ability to listen ability developing one's ability to own one's own impact on the space or on on, on the set of conversations that you're having so that ability to be self-reflective and and reflexive if you if, again if you take this is, this is come from Stacey's thinking so that's this idea that not only can I I think about what it is I'm doing and, and reflect on what it is I'm doing I can think about how I think about how I'm doing it, right but 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 to summarize it it's just this ability to 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 step back um detached involvement is another term that's used so this idea that I'm, I'm part of this like i can't stand outside of it so this is rejecting some of the sort of let's say kantian philosophy of what, what this idea that i can say I'm, I'm a sort of rational human who can somehow step out of the system that's what we reject from a complexity perspective we say you, you're always part of this ongoing forming and being formed by um but nonetheless i can i can still reflect on my experience and i can and I can own to, to the extent I can really understand it. But I can I can own my um, my impact. What how how it is that my gestures that my reactions have have changed what's around me. Um, so so that those are a couple of things. And I think another thing is this idea of having a skill of facilitating free flowing conversations. So one of the ways that we can detect and sense for patterns that are emerging is to allow for a free-flowing conversation and then watch what emerges. And the the tendency in organisations is not to say that structured um, conversations aren't useful in some contexts. You know, it's not, not to say that it's never useful to have an agenda or it's never useful to have a highly managed set of conversations. Absolutely, it can be. But when, we, when we're specifically looking to make sense then actually free-flowing conversations can be better. So you know, no, no agenda, open conversation, and having the, the skill to allow that to happen can be a, a tool in the armoury of, of making sense of what's emerging within a population. It, it strikes me that, that for many organisations who feel they are... Um, a, trying to, you know, some great cliches here, trying to do more with less, trying to respond to a big change in the, mar- in the market, um, trying to um, shift, shift their own culture, whether or not we think that's possible. That ha- the idea of having enough space to have a free-flowing conversation is just, just unthinkable. If I think about some of our clients, if not, and if I went and said... Um, Oh, what well, uh, the thing we need to do next? Are like our top priorities is to get lots of people together and have a free flowing conversation. Um, that that would be so alien to them; it would make no sense. So, how can you start to allow people to uh, express, listen, spot patterns in a way that's not completely countercultural to this rush, rush, rush that they're in as an organisation? Mm, it's, a, it's a great examples of where you've done that yeah um so i th- so i think there's there's ways to do it by stealth um so let's just take for an example just take a really small example of working with a very traditional with a big retailer um who, who had a typical meeting structure and they always had this AOB, you know, like most steering committees or formal meetings, there's the, the, there's the AOB section. And so one of the things I did there was I, I, I highlight, hijacked that AOB session, which actually is often the place where these free phone conversations happen. Um, but by um, sort of radically reducing a lot of the bureaucracy in the earlier part of the meeting, we were able to shrink that section of the meeting down 
and then for the AOB, um, change the change the dynamic of the conversation. So it wasn't the chair of the meeting saying, "Okay, who's got something they want to raise." Um, I took on the role as as a facilitator rather than the person with the most authority in the room of of kind of crowdsourcing a set of topics and then having people talk um, to each topic in a time box fashion. But it allowed for, and I know that sounds like it's not so free-flowing, but it did allow for a lot more of topics to emerge and a lot more voices to emerge in the conversation. Um, uh, Yeah, in a way that did feel like it was much more free-flowing. And out of that, we often got the best data at that section of the meeting. And once people started to see it, you might get a few people who, having experienced that, think, oh, actually yeah maybe we should make more space for this because it because it because it helps us to you know understand the environment better i mean that sounds that sounds very like taking some of the principles of open space technology and just sort of um inspiring an existing meeting just making mm-hmm. tweaks to make it to give to imbue a, a current um meeting of some kind with the the um, qualities and characteristics of an open space type, mm. type conversation. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a, it's finding kind of gaps you know, where the ice is thin. Mm. Okay, well, okay, maybe here I can I can try something. I can probe something. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, and and, and turn taking is important. So um, that that's another if there's a way to structure conversations so that you can allow for more turn taking it just gives you more data it gives you more sensors i mean snowden has this 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 idea of the human sensor and so when we're trying to map culture or organizations or populations we we treat each human as a sensor so how do we get data from the sensor mm. <laughs> now that's a sort of slightly utilitarian arguably slightly scary way of viewing it but uh I do, I do like that idea. It's like, how can I, how can I ping all of these sensors to get some data from them? No. Um, so, so creating structures, which sort of in some level enforce turn-taking is, is useful. Yeah. I mean, that sounds um, very close to my heart and, and part of what our meeting product Lomo is trying to do. And I wonder if you can kind of put language to that better than, better than I can. So, so we, you know, in, intuitively we know that, participation is important you know we we it's not a new thing to say well let's have a meeting where everybody gets a chance to say what they really say what they think we know that's completely different from real um data sensing as you describe it we also know that um the traditionally we've thought of communication as being uh, you know 70 percent content so literally the words that you say and plus 30 percent or whatever the kind of exact number might be as being about often it's been termed as body language so we're kind of picking up the body language and my belief has always been that um there's far more to it than body language and even than tone of voice that humans are good at um receiving data face to face probably far more than they could put into put into words and i wonder if you could suggest what some of those things might be like what what are we sensing when we hear somebody speak face to face right um yeah that's a good that's a good question um i don't yeah i the, the, that isn't something i've done a huge amount of thinking on in terms of what what do we you know what do we really take on when we interact face to face with people um there is probably a lot more than than often gets described. I know there's some research that's done that suggests that some certain engineer, mechanical engineers literally develop a smell unless they can, they can smell whether uh, an engine or a piece of equipment um, has got something wrong with it. So, um, really? so odour might be more important than we think it is, for example. So I, um, yeah, but that's a great question. And I've got to be honest there, you know, I, you know certainly my intuition is, um, that, that, that we get, that there's a lot more data available when we're face to face. Um, and also I think it's interesting to think about is, is talking always the best medium? Um, I did a lot of work with one group and one session we ran as, um, a Lego series play session. And that was interesting that there was one individual in this group. And for those who don't know Lego series play, it's a, it's uh, using Lego uh, in a serious way um, to 
to explore complex problems. Um, but that's great for turn taking because, you know, m- most people, uh, feel confident to try and build something. Uh, and this one individual who would, who would never engage in any kind of talk based environments. And even if we had stickies and post-its, which was generally fairly reluctant. But once we had this Lego based conversation, she was, fully engaged and built this great model and then was and then actually in that context did feel able to talk more and tell the story of her model but even to an extent we could already see with our eyes a lot of what it is she was trying to communicate to us so that's also something to consider as well is that um talking may not not be the only medium to explore and trying to make sense of people's stories and narratives and you know what they, what it is that they've got to share Mm. Can, can I take you um, <clears throat> over to a, an area that you've mentioned a couple of times, which is experiments? So um, <laughs> many of the things we talked about so far, I think, will inherently resonate with people listening and, and watching. But trying to describe that as a job, so, so the reality is we live within a commercial system. Um, will, will an organisation pay for somebody to um, uh, allow the organisation to explore emergent patterns in stories? That's not a job title yet. I'm sure it will be. So as, as in the commercial world, we don't, we're just socialising some of these ideas. But the word you've said several times so far, and I know is part of... Um, our kind of shared lexicon of how do you take steps in practice that are tangible and um, create out- create some kind of outcome that is is helpful is to use an experiment. So can you talk more about the concept of experiment as it applies to change agents? Yeah. Um, so what can we say about experiments? I mean, in a sense, all change projects are experiments. <laughs> it's just, so whether we consciously or not, everything we do at some level is an experiment. Um, so really we're just raising, we're just bringing consciousness to what sort of is already true um, in, in all of our work. And so the, there's a few elements of it. I think one is the idea that we have a, a hypothesis. So we take the sort of humility of a scientist and say, we're not, we're not sure that this, that what we're going to try here is going to have the particular outcome, but we hypothesize that by doing X, um, Y will happen, Y will emerge. So, so that's the, the, the first part of it is just to switch how we, we think about the interventions that we make into something which is, which accepts to the, some degree of unpredictability of our environment. Uh, that's the first thing to say. Uh, and then the second thing to say is, is to think about then, well, how do we deal? How do we manage, if you like, around this experiment? Um, the first is to think about, well, what if it's successful? How would we amplify the impacts? Um, and what if it's not? What if there's some unintended consequence or just um, something that we may have considered that, that might happen? Well, how do we dampen a potential negative impact? So that's a, those are a couple of things to think about. Um, the other thing to talk about, um, and this may not always be appropriate, but if we're thinking about, um, maximizing the chance of this experiment being taken up or, or, or engaged with, then how do we make it visible? How do we, um, I mean, Stacey again, one of these complexity thing, thinks about these gestures that we make and you could think about an, a, 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 an experiment as a gesture to a population of humans or, or a social object, right? That we sort of put into this, this, uh, this dynamic is how do you make, how do you get as many people engaging with it so make it visible um get other people involved to to co-create the experiment and then they can share um, their story of what this experiment about with those around them so there are ways to maximize the chance of it actually being executed as an experiment and taking up taken up by the population and then of course then you want to think about well how are we going to sense for the outcome how are we going to sense for what people make of it and what happens afterwards so I, it's interesting you say that i've i've started putting in virtually every um positioning slide deck i do a slide quite early on that says life is an experiment and has a clearly hilarious um picture of some kind of scientific experiment happening in the 1920s and some you know nice speech bubbles with it and i'm i'm starting to 
to badge everything as an experiment in in an attempt to um i'm really saying i i come in peace you know we're just here to try something and see what works and you can um the implication being you can decide use what's useful and discard what isn't which is what people will do anyway um can you describe the characteristics of a great experiment so what does Mm. a good experiment look like um well, I suppose it's one that's had some impact because the, the worst kind of experiment is one where you don't really know if it succeeded or it failed. Um, so how would you design an experiment? So- yeah, so I can give an example of a, of a failed experiment and it failed not because it didn't. So, so okay, so I was working with a group of, a group of journalists and one of the things that the, 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 the challenges that they had was um, that um, they felt like they were kind of behind, behind the curve in terms of infographics, right? So that's a that's the thing now in journalism is that you know visual journalism and uh so the the, the experiment was to create a guild of info graphicians if that's a word right so let's create this guild and let's create this center of excellence and then perhaps by doing that we're going to um increase the the the, the level of output of infographics in our work and people will have a resource to draw on to create them and, and so on and so okay let's run an experiment over let's say three months let's set up this guild that's put some resource into it and then we can monitor it in terms of number of infographics produced and the and the impact that those infographics have let's say on social media so we had a few metrics that we might want to look at and um we had some some ideas around how we'd, we'd set it up um now you can just say that's just a that sounds just like a project in a sense it is you know right but we're just being conscious about the fact it's an experiment because maybe this isn't the best way to go about um improving the output or increasing the output of the graphics now that everybody was on board with this we co-created it the 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 head of the news desk was behind it and was part of the creating of it went out of the room and the person who was nominated to lead it and who had said in the session yeah i'll lead it didn't didn't run with it just um didn't get the time uh from her manager and for whatever reason decided not to run with it so it never happened so we never got to know whether the guild of infographics was going to succeed or fail so i think in some ways that's the worst type of experiment one that never actually gets executed i said that that's what i've uh, i've learned from from this is that from from working in this way is that in, in some senses you you still need the rigor that we learned from project management which is you've got to you you've got to put some support behind it and some resourcing behind it to ensure it actually gets gets executed i mean another example of a of an experiment which is a good experiment in the sense that it failed was um there was this particular group i was working with and they had a um a an issue as they perceived it with self-esteem as low as self-esteem in this group. And so I suggested, well, maybe we should use kudo cards, which are for those who don't know that they're like little postcards and you write, you know, Carrie was awesome today for doing X or Richard did a great job at this. And then Thanks, you, yeah, you, you stick it on a wall and people are publicly acknowledged. And this was my idea. This was going to improve the esteem of the group. And I suggested it a couple of times and then, um, finally brought in this set of cards and and said to the to the leader of this team right we're going to do it and and she sort of flipped and said f off with your hippie shit and told me to um you know <laughs> bog off with my kudo cards so but so it, that was a kind of in a sense I'd, I'd pushed it as far as I could and I'd experimented with set it up and felt and it was and I'd learned you know right? it was this kind of slightly clumsy and um unfortunate way that I learned, but that was that was me attempting something and falling flat and getting data from the group, which is, you know, they're not ready to try that, you know, for whatever reason, or individually or perhaps more in the group, we're just not in a place where that was going to be the thing that was going to work for them. But it was a success in the sense that I, I tested it and um, got a very clear piece of feed, feedback. Um I hope that makes sense. It's 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 where you can actually test something and get some some data back and make some sense of whether it might have worked or not. 
So, so if we assume that um, these experiments need to have really, really clear outcomes, they probably need to be quite on fairly short time frames. So if you're going to fail, you want to fail within a couple of weeks rather than spend, <laughs> spend 18 months failing. Um, but I, I come back to the issue around um, time and resource. So you and I worked on a, um, a big um, cu- culture change program, well-designed um, recently, um, designed to help people find experiments and do them. Um, and there was great energy at the two-day event at which we did a lot of co-creation and um, design of those experiments. Uh, quite a sense of community, I think, coming out of that and a sense of we've really got a new way to think about things and something that's, that's much more doable than the old way. And um, But then what happened was um, pe- people had no, no specific time carved out from it. There was no reduction in any of their other goals or deliverables in their role and the time we ended up with perhaps 25 people with very 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 thin um bands of time available and so even doing something really simple like changing the way um a Skype for business meeting is run was just too much to do um so what would be your thoughts and recommendations about how people can how how the organization can create the conditions in which people have enough time and energy to do an experiment yeah so i think there you've got to you've got to find somebody who's got the authority to give people space and and is really committed to the idea um so that i think that's what i've learned is that yeah organizations are in differing states of readiness to adopt this as a philosophy. And it, and I think that's largely dependent on, yeah, those, those with authority over people's time, to what extent, as you say, can they create the, the conditions where people have space to do it? Um, and so, so that would be always where I would try and work in future. And what I do now a lot more, I'm much more conscious of this now with clients is like, well, it's no, it's no good me coming in as a change agent and suggesting that people and encourage people to take on experiment and co-create them with them if they don't have any space to do it. Um, so that's, um, so that's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is sometimes we have a, if, if we as change agents are engaged with a client, it, it may be only us who have the latitude, <laughs> right? So because, I'm not employed generally by clients on a sort of nine to five, five days a week type basis. I often in, have the privileged position and to have a little bit more latitude over the time and resources and, and, and able to, and, and I am able to set experiments up in a, in a slightly different way. And then if people can experience the benefit of that. They can then become evangelists um, within the organization. So that's the other thing to do is quite often, I'll work with change agents and coach other change agents and they'll say, and they'll, they'll design all these experiments that require other people to lead them. <laughs> and what I try to encourage is to do, well, what about you? Could you design one that only needs you um, and your time and your energy and start mm. there? It's interesting that the, so the person who commissioned that project um or that, that piece of work in the organization we worked with, she she was really, I think she played a really in, inspirational role. Um, she's very low-key, very kind of, uh, she's on the board, warm, um, easygoing person. You'd uh, And what she did is she used her physical presence, i.e. where she put her desk, where she, um, where she sat, who she worked with, what she talked about. Um, she before we even started generating ideas, she was clearly and open, openly experimenting with her own ways of working in quite a low-key, unshowy way. And I think that seemed to make a big difference to people's kind of acceptance of um, acceptance of, of a, a different way of doing things. But also it set the tone for what for the scale of things that you might do that might make a difference, i.e. pretty small how some small things can make a, a, a huge difference. 
Mm, I think that's a great point. Yeah, modeling it. Um, and the other, the other thing is to sort of come back big picture again and to look at, okay, some of the causes of people, people's busyness, right. And, and why they may not have spaces to really look at uh, workload. And, and there's a guy called Finn Goldling, who, Gold, Golding, who's the um, CIO of Aviva, the big insurer. And he's written a couple of books. Um, one's called flow and the other one's called, I think 12 steps to implementing flow, but he, his big thing is visualization. And one of the ways he uses visualization is to visualize the number of projects that exist within an organization. Um, and then is, is really big on managing work in progress. So mm. he's, he's all about let's visualize what we've got. Let's get clear about the reality of, of what we've taken on and let's ruthlessly cut it down um, to, to a small amount of work that people have got, which doesn't fill their week. And so in that sense, he's seeking to systemically reduce workload for individuals to give them space to experiment. Mm, interesting. And yeah. but I, I, just, just as a, a heads up to those listening, I'm going to ask if there are any questions in a couple of minutes. So have a, have a think about what they might be and um, you can pop them in the chat or ask them directly. Um, in the meantime, Richard, can you, You've just talked about, uh, just just headed us in the direction of leaders. And can you just give us your thoughts on the role? What what do leaders need to do to themselves, with others, to create the conditions in which more helpful patterns of culture can emerge? Yeah. Um, well, so that's one. Yeah, I think from what, what I just mentioned, so so taking an active role if we're specifically talking about the experimental aspect of you know, what we've talked about in terms of complexity. So, um, cause of course it might be that somebody is fully engaged in a single experiment and that's entirely, um, consistent with what we're talking about. Um, but to the extent that people need space beyond their day job, if you like to experiment, and that that's one thing to do is, um, to be a truth teller in that sense of, what's really going on and what's what people really committed to and, and cutting out the waste. And so I think there's a lot to learn from all of the lean thinking there. Um, it's some phenomenal number of employee suggested experiments that Toyota engage in on an annual basis. I don't have the stat in front of me, but it's, it's just mind blowing. Like the number of employee Based suggestions that Toyota takes up, you know, each year, you know, way beyond any of their of their peers. Um, so there's there is that um, managing waste as a leader, and then what we've talked about as an interpersonal level. So that ability to facilitate open conversations, uh, make space um, for those open conversations. There's a brilliant there's a brilliant uh, anecdote in in this book that I mentioned by, by Stacey called uh, strategic management and organizational dynamics about a case study in the NHS where they had this problem with elderly people falling, right? So, so falls within wards. It was mainly elderly. It was falls in general, but um, predominantly elderly people. And uh, their first work, their first attempt at tackling this problem was to set a bunch of, goals around how many falls that they wanted to have obviously less falls on an annual basis um set of action plans and training plans uh the sort of traditional change approach to this and initially they had a big impact like 15 percent drop in falls or something um but then the falls i think a year later the falls went back up to their original level so the whole in what is quite familiar to many of us working in corporate knows is the entire change initiative failed. Um, so they took a, th a second attempt and they took one experienced nurse, took her out of her day job and said, okay, your job is to rotate around the nursing teams and facilitate reflective conversations with each team about how that team can reduce the number of falls. And the skill of that nurse was to create a space where people could 
openly share about because because some of the behavior is quite shameful from these nurses from what i understand you know that they, they felt ashamed of how they were behaving and how that might have contributed to fall so creating the you know it's a bit of a buzzword right now but the psychological safety for these conversations to happen in an open way was key from what i understand to to this particular nurse's work um and the turn taking and the free flowing conversation and presumably that nurse as well, owning her impact on that space. All of those things I'd alluded to before she was, as I understand it, exhibiting in her role there as facilitator of these reflective conversations. And what they found was this approach dramatically reduced the number of falls in a sustained way. Um, So so that for me is a great example of of what we mean by leadership wow. um, in this context. It it strikes me how many of the things you've talked about are understated, they're low tech, um, they're not particularly shiny. And in fact, your shiniest example, the kudo cards were <laughs> thrown back <laughs> in your... Uh, uh, to throw back into the shiny drawer. Um, and it, it just strikes me that this is, I guess this is my final big question for you, probably unanswerable, but give it a go. Um, is that if we think about the kind of people who lead organizations, the mindset and models they've grown up with, uh, many of them very emotionally intelligent and very, um, tuned in, but still this doesn't feel like leadership too many people this won't feel like leadership so it would is it that we've got the wrong leaders can they shift to a different way do we need different leaders like what's what's the bigger implication yeah i suppose it to some extent it is reframing what we what we mean by leadership i remember going in to to well, actually it was this retailer i mentioned and uh, did a huge amount of work in terms of transforming how we worked as a, as a change and, and it wasn't you know i was again you know I, I was gesturing to this population, some of which were taken up in ways that had an impact. But um, I remember somebody afterwards saying, oh, yeah, Richard, you know, we really love all that that communication stuff you do. And I was was sort of incessant. I was like, this, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, in in, in my ego, I was was engaging in leadership, not not communications. But, But I can really see how, from a certain perspective, what this looks like is, you know, facilitation and communication. Um, uh, and, and in a sense it is, but I suppose what we're talking about is reframing some of those skills that get badged in that way to, um, to, to being more about leadership. But it's, you know, it's, it, it's tricky because, you know, we're all wired to some extent to be very conscious of where we sit in power hierarchies and, and where we sit in, in, in an authoritative ladder. And if we perceive that engaging in these types of activities and developing these skills is not going to help us to progress up a hierarchy, then we're not, you know, many of us, a lot of the time, not going to go there. So it's, yeah, it's complex. <laughs> so if you have a, a question um, that you would like to ask Richard privately or um, uh, offline then please do so you can either put it into the chat to either of us privately um, or into the group or um, you can uh, email either of us and Richard what would you leave as a final thought for somebody who's got one foot in the corporate world so one foot firmly on the payroll (laughs) at an organization that that is pointing in the right direction but doesn't really get all this stuff quite yet and another foot firmly in this understanding of um culture as an emergent uh, system with emergent properties where it isn't possible to guarantee an outcome or to apply the same modern management techniques that we've been um, driving businesses with for the last hundred years so what would be your reflection for those people? Um, yeah. Um, 
I think I think one thing that really shifted for me in terms of sort of reconciling these two worldviews is that um, I, I think it's the phrase speaking into people's values. So, like, if somebody really values their sense of certainty and their belief in, um, I don't know, the value of detailed planning or um, the value of structure, the value of, you know, the hierarchy or whatever it might be for them, is I think where I've been most successful is where I've really seek to take on their value set and said, okay, well, if, if this was what was dear to me and this was what I really wanted in the world and this is what I wanted to see, how could, how could I present what it is that I've got to offer such that it's completely consistent with what they value? So how can I, from the perspective I've got, frame whatever it is I've got to offer as something that's going to have them have even more of what they currently have. And that feels like it's an impossible task. But when I come from that place, I think I get much closer to um, designing interventions that are, are effective. Um, yeah. That's my thought. Wonderful. Wonderful. And that's, that speaks directly to one of our, biggest principles of one fish two fish which is which is meet people where they are right now not where you want them to be or where the um uh, thought leadership suggests people could be but start with what people are ready for right now and use their worldview to frame it thank you so much richard um you can find richard at on twitter um, at Rotherton Rich, um, I am at C Beddingfield. We are at One Fish Comms. Um, the recording for this will be available on the uh, OneFishComs.co.uk website and also via Twitter within um, the next week. And we have a full um, remainder of a se- this season to continue with four more speakers over the next four weeks. So, looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.